Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello and welcome and thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. A very big special thanks to John and Jennifer and Jenna Davis. I think the whole Davis clan was involved here. They're good work filling in as a host and hostesses uh, here in the chairs the past couple weeks. And back at the microphone today with me is Tim Cockrell. Tim just began our new scripture study in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So Tim, thanks for working with the Davises. I know that's a struggle, oh, uh, those Davis people. They're amazing it was really fun to be able to do the podcast with no, them. you and i were just talking it's just nice to have a different flavor mm-hmm. uh they they provide that and it's, it's i really appreciate john and jen and the family uh, tim i'm sure we're jumping in here to matthew chapter five some of our members who could be scratching their heads and saying hey wait a minute i thought we already studied this just uh, less than two years ago mm-hmm. why have we come back to it so quickly so what gives So we talked about this just briefly at the beginning of the message on Sunday. When we did the book of Matthew previously, we were doing it somewhat at the 30,000-foot view. And I just so admired the way the different members of the preaching team covered the majority of the book, because this was before I ever was even called as the pastor here. But we were doing basically a chapter or more of Matthew per sermon. And there's a lot of material there, especially here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think this is a a complementary series, if you will, in that that first series allowed us to have the 30,000 foot view. What's Matthew's argument? What's his point? How do all these pieces fit together? And now we're going to kind of zoom in. If we have the macro, now we're looking at the micro level to say, let's just pause and meditate on these truths, allow them to kind of marinate in our hearts so that we can really reflect on what does it mean to be a kingdom citizen? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And what effect should that have in our lives? And we're coming directly from a study of Hosea, and right before that, Habakkuk, uh, in the Old Testament, two prophecies focused, as we said then, on the southern and the northern kingdom Mm -hmm. of Israel and Judah. But uh, we're dealing with issues here that have a direct correlation, really, to what we've been talking about. We've been, even last week, I was not in uh, here in, uh, in body, but I was here in spirit. Uh, <laughs> the point is that you preached last week uh, from the last part of Hosea saying, hey, we really need to examine ourselves. There's just a lot, a real easy transition here into Matthew chapter 5. It's true, and I think that's one of the points Matthew is trying to draw out throughout his book, is it's not like God had one standard for his people in the Old Testament, and that then he has a completely different standard in the New Testament. We even see this in the covenant that God makes with his people in Sinai. He says, I want you to be my distinctive people who are called by my grace, redeemed by my gracious provision of mercy and then living in a way that it is distinctive because of who you are now in relationship to me. Well, that sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. But even when we looked at Hosea, as he talked about the importance of repentance from the level of the heart to take our sins seriously and avail ourselves of God's grace, all people in all time who have ever been saved have been saved by faith through the grace of God at work in our lives. And I think that's important to maintain because sometimes if we're not careful, we can just imagine, well, people in the Old Testament were saved by works somehow, you know, through sacrifices or good works. But now in the New Testament, we're living by grace. Well, no, it's been grace 
all throughout God's program in, in Scripture. And dealing here specifically in what is producing uh, that fruit, and we'll, we'll get to that here just a little bit later, what the necessary outcome of that salvation is. Tim, you've entitled the series The Upside-Down Kingdom. And by the way, I love your graphic. Uh, very catchy. Mm. Uh, you indicated that through these teachings, Jesus shared we're going to see a life live for Christ uh, in the life of the believer. We're going to see a life live for Christ. And that's going to take us in directions that are very countercultural to our society's teachings, really any society uh, of humanity. Mm -hmm. But does a life lived for Christ have to be so difficult? Jesus seems to be saying that it does because our values and our priorities are so dramatically different. You know, that when we think about the world and the way they do things, no, you, you have success by grabbing for things, by asserting your will, by, by you know, proving your self-sufficiency. And so I think part of the purpose of Jesus as he goes down through the Beatitudes is this kind of just rapid fire listing of things that are, are shocking and surprising. It would have been shocking to them and it's shocking to us. Like Turning things upside down. Exactly. So for them in their society, humility was not considered a virtue. It was considered a sense of weakness. You know, that, that purity in our heart or in our, our actions was not considered a priority. You were living for yourselves. And we see the same types of patterns now. So if we're going to live in this countercultural way, it's going to create tension. It's going to bring friction, even as we'll see this next week. Often it's going to then bring persecution and opposition. Because as the light exposes the darkness, the darkness hates it. And it's going to react and rebel against it. Okay, so can we jump then to the conclusion that if we are not having difficulty in this world, if we're not finding it difficult to live, is that saying something necessarily? I think it likely is. You know, when Scripture says, and it's, I believe it's in Second Timothy, that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a pretty all-inclusive claim. Now, what that persecution looks like is going to look different depending on your cultural context. Here in America, because of the freedoms that were granted, it's very unlikely that you're going to be thrown into prison or, or killed for your faith. But that if we are living our lives in a way that we don't ever experience opposition, there's never any discomfort in our lives because of the stand that we take for Jesus, I think we need to ask ourselves some probing questions. That if, if my light is shining... What effect is it having? Because many times what happens is when it does expose that darkness, it's going to result in the people reacting against it. And I fear that many times we as believers have adopted a form of cultural Christianity that is not distinctively Christ-like in its form. And would it also be true then, just catching on, the, grabbing on to what you said, that sometimes it's not the light that is causing the problem. Sometimes it's the individuals. We have to do it in love. We have to do it. We have to live with love in our hearts for our fellow man. But uh, we've got to be careful not to be the problem ourselves. Right. And I think that's one of the things that Jesus will say kind of in a subtle way. But he says, you are blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Not because you're a knucklehead. <laughs> not because you're harsh and abrasive or judgmental or self-righteous. But rather that as you are living out your new identity with these new patterns that now fit your kingdom citizenship, then if you are persecuted, 
it's because Christ is in you. He says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. No servant is greater than the master. And that's then the connection to our persecution. Okay, you, you shared that these Beatitudes that we read about in the first 12 verses, 11 or 12 verses, chapter 5, they're not necessarily a call to live for, but to live from our identity in Christ. And you're familiar, I spent a lot of time here the past couple of weeks thinking through this fruit of the Spirit, Galatians mm-hmm. chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But that's really what Paul is teaching there. It really, say, you know, the fruit, the fruit of a life lived for Christ or a life lived through Christ is this he talks about in Galatians the the nine components that he mentions Mm -hmm. absolutely and I think it's so important to see that it's fueled by grace and it's empowered by the spirit because if we don't get that right I fear that we're going to come to the Sermon on the Mount as just some impossible spiritual checklist that only makes us feel more weighed down with guilt and shame and inferiority and unworthiness. And there's a part of that. Part of the purpose of the law is to expose our own inability, but it ought to drive us to dependence on Christ. It ought to remind us of our insufficiency apart from Christ and ought to then fill us with the spirit who is the only one who's capable of producing this type of life. And so if there are ways in which we are convicted by the Beatitudes, the, the goal or the response should not just be to say, I'm going to, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to really prove myself, but rather we put off those old patterns, those deeds of the flesh from Galatians chapter five, and we surrender to the work of the spirit. And it's, it's not a a passive type of approach, but rather a, a trusting and active way of following the spirit. So given that it might also be a good time now to address the person who is listening and they're thinking, well, okay, uh, you talk about the fruit of the spirit. I'm loving. I have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That kind of ex- is my life. Uh, I'm okay then. Right? Well, I would remind us of Jesus saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, we all have hearts that are prone to deceive us. And just as the Pharisees in Jesus's day were tempted toward self-righteousness. So uh, like the, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the, the tax collector looks at this Pharisee or the Pharisee looks at this tax collector and says, God, I thank you. I'm not like this guy because I've got my act together. And so I don't think it's wrong if we're examining ourselves to say, God, you, your spirit is at work. There is progress towards spiritual maturity, but at any point we come to being kind of self-satisfied or feeling like, no, we've, we've arrived, that's one of the surest signs we haven't. And all we need to do is talk to our spouse or our small group or our ABF or people that really know us to be able to have some insight to the fact that while we maybe are progressing in maturity, there's not a single one of us who have arrived at what we are called to be. And for that person, I might, if we can just take it one little step further, actually a giant step further for that person who has not placed their faith in Christ, mm-hmm. who could be saying, yeah, I, I exhibit those too. Uh, it, but if it's not through Christ and if it's not uh, fruit of the spirit, it's all for naught. Right. Well, and I think many times what we do is we do exactly what the Pharisees did. And that is we take the requirements of God's law and lowered them to the point where we maybe could attain them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's what Jesus is going to do later on here in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, you know, that if, if you just avoid these external behaviors, that then you're okay. But I tell you, it all starts in the heart. 
And as soon as we begin to really understand what Jesus is teaching there, it ought to fill us with humility. And that's why that first step in becoming kingdom citizens and and living as kingdom citizens is to declare spiritual bankruptcy. Because as long as we're holding on to the idea that our effort or our religious or moral performance can somehow earn God's acceptance, we're never going to avail ourselves of God's grace. Leads right into what I wanted to ask you here next. Uh, let's talk about fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Uh, fulfillment in uh, just as a person, as a Tim, as a Bart. Everybody we know wants to be fulfilled in life. We want to have that sense of uh, purpose, sense of fulfillment. And we teach here at Grace that from the scripture that such fulfillment is really possible only through a life committed to Jesus. So for the people who would say, well, I've found fulfillment, Bart, in in my career, my family, my hobbies, my friends, whatever other source of fulfillment they may think they've found. How do you respond to that person? Right. I think we have to acknowledge that there's a difference between fulfillment and fleeting happiness. Like sin is pleasurable for a time. There are good gifts that God gives us even that provide a a sense of joy or fulfillment here on the earth. However, I think we have to recognize that they are temporary and they are incomplete. So even the good gifts that we might enjoy, family or food or, or relaxation or even productive work, are all ultimately pointing us to a creator who we are accountable to and we're called to live for. But as Romans 1 reminds us that many times, rather than worshiping the creator, we begin to pursue the creation. We worship those things. And so what we do is we take these good things and make them God things. And we ask them to fulfill a role they were never intended to fulfill. And so ultimately then that's always going to result in disappointment, disillusionment, brokenness and emptiness because they can't provide what only God can. So we're trying to make them fulfill that. And so if you're listening to this and you say, well, actually I'm, I'm all set as they would say in new England, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing just fine. I would just point your attention to the fact that your feelings are not the final arbiter of truth. And I would even say that many times when somebody who has arrived by the world standard is really brutally honest, they'll admit this can't be all there is. This isn't fulfilling. There's a a famous interview by Tom Brady, uh, just a few years into his NFL career. He had already won three Super Bowls. He uh, was married to a supermodel or was dating a supermodel at that point. And they said, so, you know, you, how do you feel? And he says, well, I just think to myself, is this really it? Is this all there is to life? And I think if we're honest, if we are living just for what the world provides, although it might be pleasurable in the season, there's some deep down fear that is this really all there is? Because it doesn't ultimately satisfy. The quote ascribed to some rich man, whether it was Rockefeller or Carnegie or whoever, how much is too much or mm-hmm. how much is enough? Yep. Just one more dollar. Absolutely. So this goes to the point you made. Uh, you kind of boiled down these first four Beatitudes, it gave each of them a, a, just a one-word notation, bankrupt, broken, humble, hungry. Kind of upside down, certainly. Mm-hmm. But it's okay to feel these things in recognition of 
in the context of our relationship with Jesus, I feel bankrupt without Jesus, but boy, with Jesus, I'm a, I'm a prince. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that we have to understand that those attitudes are the expression of our new identity. And so we declare spiritual bankruptcy because we're not living for ourselves. We're not trying to make it on our own. We've come to the point where we acknowledge that apart from Christ, we are dead and blind and broken. And counterintuitively, that's the very beginning of the new life and fulfillment and and the flourishing that we've been searching for in all these other places. In the same way, I mean, how ironic is it that Jesus would say, blessed are you when you mourn. You are happiest when you are unhappy. But that's because you have come to a point of brokenness that you are no longer going to pursue those dead-end roads that only lead to greater brokenness. And that you come now to the great physician who is the one who brings healing and hope. Same way, you know, you're blessed when you are humble. Because in that meekness, you know the gentleness and goodness of God such that your proper attitude and self-awareness before God transforms your attitude toward others and then your actions and the way that you live. And so these counterintuitive truths really are pointing us to theological principles that we can find all throughout Scripture, that as long as we're trying to drink from the mud puddle for satisfaction, we're never going to know the joy of the living water that Jesus gives. And this isn't necessarily, Tim, a, an attaboy or an girl for those who just naturally are melancholy. Oh, good, you feel bankrupt? You should feel bankrupt. It, right. This is, it's not that, it's really a, a, again, let's focus on Christ and let's, let's feel the weight of sin. Is that a fair statement? Let's feel the weight of sin and the, and the death that it brings and the devastation it brings. But look at the victory. Isn't that what we're saying here? Absolutely. These aren't just a matter of personality because otherwise somebody could say, well, I'm not meek. God just made me to be a a bold person or a courageous person. No, I mean, Jesus was as bold or courageous a person as you can find. And yet he's also the picture of meekness because he refused to assert his will, but demonstrated his strength by laying down his life rather than to, to try to serve himself. He served others. And it would also be true to say that that conqueror personality it's not a call for them just to say, well, we've, we've won it all and we don't have anything to worry about. We just, there's still battle to be fought. Absolutely. I think each of our personalities, the way that God has wired us, are going to have strengths and corresponding weaknesses. And so there are going to be some aspects of spiritual growth that are going to come easier for some people and come harder for others. But for every one of us, the Spirit's going to expose our insufficiency apart from Him. Next week, we're jumping into several more. We're going to finish the Beatitudes here in uh, verse 11 and 12. Uh, what are we in for? Yeah, so I think it's really fascinating as I, I study it that there's a, a parallelism here that the first four Beatitudes focus primarily on our vertical relationship with God, our, our self-awareness of our need for him and our turning to him to find satisfaction that only he can provide. The second four focus primarily horizontally on our relationship with others. So in other words, as we are transformed by knowing God and having his character begin to grow in us, it transforms our relationships around us. It's actually similar to what we see in the Ten Commandments, where the first several commandments are focused on right relationship with God, and then the rest of the commandments are related on rightly loving our neighbor, which is why then Jesus, when he's asked what's the greatest commandment, says it's really two of them. 
to love God vertically and to love your neighbor horizontally. And so we're going to spend some time unpacking what it means to be merciful, what it means to be pure in heart. What does it look like for us to be peacemakers in our relationship? And what effect should our faith and the way that we live it out have on the world around us in the way that they, they respond to us? Every day, boots on the ground instruction mm-hmm. from God's word. Tim, we were uh, got some time here, and I thought maybe it'd be good just to we we've as the elders uh, have presented a revised constitution to the congregation. We've had a couple of hearings or forums we call them, just allowing the congregation to uh, speak into questions, comments, concerns, whatever it might be. At that point, we have uh, we said, okay, we had planned to have a vote on such and such a date, but we said, hey, we're gonna we're gonna pull that back. We've made some changes related to the congregation's feedback, and uh, uh, we said, let's let's listen and and respond appropriately. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us where we are in that? that process we have a vote set we've publicized it for september 10 mm-hmm. i think that what i've said kind of characterizes our the posture and what we've done mm-hmm. you share a little more about what our process has been since those forums right well i think it's just a great illustration of the fact that grace is congregationally governed and elder-led so it's very hard for an entire congregation to come together in a meeting let's say and and come to certain conclusions but the elders bring a proposal and then the congregation gives feedback on that proposal. And I think, you know, the elders, as we listened and as we desired to understand, there were several points that were brought up that we said, that's a, that's a helpful perspective. Or maybe that's an area that, that we thought was clear that maybe wasn't as clear as we wanted it to be. And so the elders then went back to say, hey, we want to take seriously this feedback from the congregation before then we ask them to vote on these proposed changes. And so we've now presented a few additional changes, you know, one of them being that as we talk about how decisions are made, we are a congregationally governed church. And that's spelled out in various points of the different decisions that the congregation is asked to make. But specifically in Article 5, we say we want to just spell those out in, in summary form so that somebody just at a quick glance can see what decisions does the congregation make here at Grace. And we've made a couple of other uh, changes based on what the congregation has suggested. And so now we're having dialogues and ABFs and other forums to make sure that people understand the rationale behind those changes. If there's anything else that we've maybe missed along the way. But we recognize no document's ever going to be perfect. And so we're coming to the point now where we're ready to vote on it here on September 10th. So you're you're saying no document's ever perfect. We're going to come back next year and... Do it again? We are not planning on uh, making this a regular revision. There's an immense amount of work that goes into it. But we do recognize that as time goes on, there is an, an importance of revisiting and revising. Uh, and I don't think that we would rule out the possibility of, in this version of the constitutional revisions that are proposed, we didn't do anything with the Articles of Faith. We didn't touch anything related to our doctrinal articulation of where we stand on things. So I think there's a possibility that over the next several years, we then turn our attention to that. And just as we've done with the rest of the Constitution, say, let's make sure this says exactly what we want it to. This is a living, breathing document, but it is not inspired. It's true. But it's based on inspired word. Yes. Very good. Tim, thanks for taking time to be with us again. Appreciate your wisdom. My pleasure. We've been digging deeper once again with Tim Cockrell, and we invite you to share your questions and comments. You can get those to us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our study of God's word. 
continuing on in Matthew chapter 5 with the last four Beatitudes through verse 12. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.